Welcome to episode 12 of This Week in the Metaverse, or as we like to call it, TWIM, uh, colloquially. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover this week, so we're going to go get right into it. Um, and then next week, we're going to have a lot of ground to cover, because next week we have a lot of earnings and we have SIGGRAPH happening. So it's going to be a couple busy episodes that will keep you informed of what, what we think is most important. So, but this week, we're going to talk about three items as usual. So first, we have uh, a story from Reuters, from our, our friend of the pod, Josh Yee. He's one of the, the reporters there. He's he's writing that Unity's in talks to spin out their China business into a joint venture or some entity. So we'll talk about what that means and, and, and how why that makes sense. I think it makes sense, and I'm quoted in the article as saying such. Uh, second, also from Reuters, Tencent's considering in, increasing its stake in Ubisoft. So you know, we'll talk about what that means today in terms of the gaming and then in the future what that means for Tencent's broader metaverse ambitions. And then lastly, we'll just give a brief update on earnings from this week and then next week. There's, as I mentioned, there's a whole host of metaverse-related companies reporting earnings. Roblox, Unity, Bentley Systems is another 3D software company, Take-Two. So we're going to just kind of give an update on where we're at in earnings at Activision, EA, Sony, Nintendo this week. And so before we do dive into all of that, we have a short announcement to share with you. Okay, so we're getting right into it. So on Unity, so Reuters is reporting that they're in, talking, they're in talks to spin off their China business. Um, really, I think what's at stake here is when you're dealing with China and you're trying, particularly with sensitive industries, like if you're trying to win contracts with local governments, manufacturing, heavy industry, where there's quasi-state-owned or state-owned entities, and you want to, you know, Unity's looking to expand beyond gaming. Yes, there's a gaming angle to this, but, you know, when they're looking to expand beyond gaming into these other industries for real-time 3D with digital twins and whatnot, this is actually a very proven strategy in China. Now, you can be cynical and say you're giving up 51% of, of, your, of, the, of the company, of the local company to do it, but this has been quite successful for companies like Nokia and, and HP with H3C. So, you know, and just to put some numbers around it, um, Unity gets in their create business, so that's where they get the subscription revenue for the real-time 3D software. Roughly 25% of the revenue now comes from non-gaming customers. And of their total revenue, China's about 15, greater China, which includes mainland China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan, is roughly 15% of their total revenue. So that should just help you think about what this means financially for Unity. So, so Yon, you know, where are you at on this? What's your first take? And then we'll go right into it. I mean, we talked about Unity, I think, a couple of weeks ago with regards to the acquisition of Iron Source. And, you know, there was a bit of kind of dissatisfaction from the markets with regard to that acquisition. And, you know, Matthew and I, you, you and I, Matthew, you and I talked about the fact that it seems like it's less of an acquisition for the future. It's more of an acquisition for the present. Fast forward two weeks later with this spinoff that Unity is considering in China. Unity is obviously under growing pressure when it comes to cementing their position in many other sectors and business verticals, if it's entertainment or automotive, while Unreal Engine with the Unreal Engine 5 is obviously doing extraordinary work in these other sectors. And, and also Unreal Engine owned by Epic Games, Tencent is a large shareholder, anywhere between 30 to 40% ownership stake that Tencent has in Epic Games. And that means that Epic Games does have already that strategic access in China. Unity doesn't. And so it seems like a very smart move should it become successful where Unity can not only have a dedicated commercial effort in mainland China and tapping into those other sectors in the Chinese market, 
through a very strategic JV that they will have locally, um, but also giving them the right ammunition to compete with Unreal Engine, particularly in China, as Unreal Engine gained more footing in the market, again, accelerated or strengthened by the fact that Tencent is a large shareholder of Epic Games. I'll also note for those that don't know, because a lot of the stuff that happens there kind of goes under the radar, Tencent's building their own game engine also. So they might, you know, who knows where they end up in the future, but they're investing heavily in cloud gaming technology. They think cloud gaming with the metaverse is, is a big future platform for them. And they're building a cloud native engine to go with it. So whether that's successful or not, who knows? We've seen Amazon try and fail to build an engine. Google was probably doing it with Stadia and that failed. So who knows if it's successful or not? It's clear that anyone that tries to build an engine today is starting several decades behind basically Unreal and Unity. They're really the only two doing it at, at you know for real-time 3D here. And so you know, I, I think their position is, is very strong in that sense. And even with mobile game developers, you know, they call out in the story, Honor of Kings, which is from Tencent, is made on Unity. It's the largest mobile game in the world, in case you've never heard of it. Uh, Genshin Impact, which is much more familiar in the West, is also made on Unity. So they have had inroads in China already with gaming. Um, but, you know, I, I think they have so much bigger ambitions. And as, I think you said it very eloquently that this is a potentially a deal for the future, not a deal for the now. And looking ahead to can they really cement themselves as the go-to partner for digital twins for, you know, real-time 3D in heavy industries and manufacturing and whatnot, this is a big way for them to do that. Now, we've spoken to NVIDIA, Omniverse, they're doing the same thing. Epic Unreal hasn't talked as much about the industrial side. They seem more focused on the entertainment side, but they probably have an, an industrial strategy to go with it. I mean, Mark Petit, who we spoke to in season one, came from Autodesk, I believe. So, I mean, he has experience with industrial there. So, you know, it's not like it's something they can't do if they wanted to. So I, I think in general, the penetration of this stuff outside of gaming is so low that there's room for everyone, but you don't want to be the last one to the plate. You want to be the first one up. And I think this is a way to get them in front of customers, particularly in mainland China. And, you know, again, it's not just industry. It's not just state-owned entities. It's even governments are very big on the whole smart city concept, uh, you know, improving just city life. And they see digital twins in the metaverse as a way to do that. And this is a way to get unity in those discussions. And it's obvious that by doing a JV and a dedicated entity, it will give unity, a, at least historically looking, it will give Unity a more effective way to execute on their plans, given all of the restrictions in China with foreign ownership. And that will give them a much more effective footing into market penetration and growing their share in the Chinese market. I am curious, though, if you have a point of view, Matthew, on the how that could support, elevate, or not make any difference to Unity's enterprise value of the main company in the U.S., it can go poorly. We saw this with uh, with Arm, right? So Arm is privately held by SoftBank right now, and they, in the past, spun out their China business as a JV with local partners. And there's something called the official seal in Chinese business. So even though they're so technologically advanced in a lot of things, you still need a physical seal to sign off on official documents. It's kind of like being the gatekeeper. And the person who was in charge and had control of the seal basically went rogue and was going against the whims of, of everyone else. And you couldn't do anything about it because he has legal control of the entity. 
And so this is kind of what I was quoted in the article saying is it really comes down to who the partners are. And if you have the right partners, this can work. And we saw it work for Nokia. They've had issues for other reasons, but their China business has been relatively good. You know, HP with H3C. H3C is one of the largest, you know, enterprise hard, IT hardware uh, providers in China. Um, that's been a very successful joint venture there for HP with H3C. So I think there's a lot of examples of how this has worked well. And it really comes down to having the right partners um, and, and just having the right market fit. And, and I think there's enough demand for this that there will be enough people showing up for it if you find the right partners to help you. Now, the downside is selling hardware in China is a very, you know, there's a lot of experience doing that. So you can find the right people that have experience selling IT hardware. The enterprise software market in China is very, very undeveloped and very, very underpenetrated for lots of reasons that we don't have time to get into on this podcast. Enterprise software has just not taken off in China, whether it's cloud or on-premise. A lot of software is built in-house. It's not, you know, and it's custom and it's it's not great. So there isn't this, you know, well-entrenched enterprise software sales force that could be looking for another job to do, you know, go get big commissions on this next big thing. And so how do you train the salespeople to have these conversations, to close these deals? How do you convince the customers that this is something they should want and need and not something they should build themselves? These are all the difficulties of selling software in China. I don't think anyone necessarily has overcome that extremely well to date. And this isn't a unity problem. This is more of a China market problem. Fully agree. Great, great stuff. And so sticking with China, sort of, and you, you mentioned Tencent in the last discussion around Epic Games, just for people that don't pay attention to in, interactive entertainment, gaming, Tencent's pretty much got its tentacles everywhere. There's pretty much not a company in the world that Tencent doesn't have an investment in or work with in some capacity. They are just everywhere and they are huge. And even EA, right? You know, they co-developed Apex Legends with Tencent. It is potentially, so not, not it is potentially the, from a holding perspective, not necessarily minority or majority makes no difference. It is potentially the company with the largest amount of shareholding in gaming companies in the world and potentially by orders of magnitude. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's true. And I mean, I ran these numbers when I was at Bloomberg, you look at 10 cents portfolio, you know, you, you can create scenarios where they have over a trillion dollars of investments, potentially, depending on what these things are valued at and valuations are moving all the time. It's a whole nother debate. Anyways, focusing on the here and now, there's an article also from writers that 10 cents looking to increase its stake in Ubisoft, the French game developer. Let's just set the stage that in 2018, um, up until 2018, Vivendi had been aggressively building a stake in Ubisoft and was potentially going to force, a, you know, do a, a takeover attempt. They backed away. They sold their stake. Some of it was sold to private, and you know, as a private sale. Tencent bought five percent. The Ontario Pension uh, bought five percent. The Guimau family, which is Yves Guimau, he's the CEO, and his brothers and his family, they bought some more shares, and the rest went to the public. So the Vivendi didn't have to do this creeping control takeover after all. That was good for Ubisoft. They didn't want it. Um, fast forward, you know, when they did that deal, excuse me, Tencent signed a standstill agreement. We don't know all the terms of that, but there's rumors that it expires next year. That was something that an analyst note had today. Anyways, the story today is that Tencent is looking to increase its stake in Ubisoft. Um, you know, right now, so the, in, in the article says to become the largest shareholder, I think it's, there's wonkiness with French ownership rules once you've owned stock for so much time there's a way you can actually get double voting rights once you've owned the stairs for two years it's the i'm gonna get this wrong it's the nominative and the other account which i can't remember but 
Ubisoft IR explained it to me at one point. Uh, anyways, there's like two accounts, and if you put the shares in the other account, you get double voting rights after two years. And so basically, even though the Gimos own 15% of the stock, their voting rights are probably double that, if not more, because of this weird French law thing. So for them to become the largest shareholder on paper doesn't mean they have control and voting rights. But no matter what happens, you know, the point being that Tencent wants to up its stake is important because Ubisoft's had lots of execution issues, even before COVID, where we've had a lot of delays in AAA games. You know, they, they, they really haven't been able to put games out on time. It's just been a they have structural issues internally that they're still trying to fix. And we saw Avatar get delayed again. That's just another example. Skull and Bones is finally coming out. It's been delayed like five times. They already delayed the next Assassin's Creed. So, like, you know, there, there's lots of issues with their ability to produce content on time and at a high quality. And so at the time when Tencent initially invested, there was, you know, part of it was Tencent's going to provide a lot of know-how, both in terms of porting games to mobile and then also bringing the IP into China. Fast forward to today, the game is a lot different. Horrible pun, sorry. You know, I think on one hand, Ubisoft needs help in terms of creating games for you know their core markets and getting games out on time and maybe Tencent can give them some more know-how and expertise on actually the core operations and then the other side of the coin that I'm thinking about is as the China market gets a lot more difficult the regulatory environment is difficult for Tencent and Netties even though game approvals have started again they haven't had any games approved is this going to be is are they going to flip the script and now they're going to look at Ubisoft and say hey we can't get your games into China now you're going to help us get our games out of China. And I think there's a big opportunity for them to leverage the expertise of Ubisoft publishing on console and PC outside of China to say, we have this, for example, the Honor of Kings MMO that Tencent's working on. Can you be our publishing partner or whatever in North America and Western Europe and help us expand our reach abroad? And I think this time it's going to look a little different than it did five years ago. I know I just rambled a lot, you know, and why don't you come in and then I can go. No, I, I think this is a lot of important background for the topic because it is, it is fascinating. Look, I think there's a few things I want to mention. The first one is this is a consistent strategy that Tencent has, regardless of the size of the, of the company, to acquire tier one, top of the line IP companies in gaming, right? They've done it with uh, Riot. <laughs> People tend to forget, but but Tencent owns Riot Games. Uh, Tencent also owns, I think, eighty percent from Supercell, um, or, or or the whole the whole company. But they own majority of. They consolidate both Supercell and Riot into their financials. The, there's minority ownership exactly. of them. But they own majority. Riot's like they own majority of both companies, yeah. which people kind of, I don't know if people forget or don't even know, but that's kind of think about that. Riot Games, one of the most innovative games company in the world today, uh, Supercell, one of the most innovative game, games company in mobile, they own majority of these companies. Um, and so this is just consistently what they're doing. This is minority and this is a larger company, not necessarily by valuation, by the way, but it's a larger company. It's more, uh, it's a company that has been around for many, many years. And that leads me to the second piece, which if I'm Tencent and I look at the landscape, I also see Microsoft acquiring Activision Blizzard. And I'm looking at what Facebook want to do. And I'm looking at Apple strengthening their portfolio of games on the platform. And you're looking at Disney, which owns amazing IP. And although I haven't figured out yet what they do <laughs> with games, uh, they, they have all the possibilities to build something of a juggernaut related to games. And so I think Tencent is looking at the landscape and at their cash balance. And they're in a position to 
continue and, and invest and own and acquire incredible IP. And you know, Ubisoft, with all of their operational challenges, which apparently hasn't really improved since Tencent joined, and maybe that's one of the things Tencent want to do. They really want to help them elevate to the next level so they can really take advantage fully of the incredible IP and, 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 and fan base that they have. But also, it's an incredible catalog of IP with some amazing properties like Assassin's Creed. And Tencent wants to have a piece of that because they see the landscape. They see how much IP is important because of the evolution of games IP now to a transmedia IP. And they're, of course, also thinking about the emergence of the metaverse and what all that means. And they understand that virtual worlds and content and fandom is, are going to continue to be critical for the success of, of ultimately content, 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 content. And, and I'm sure there are other capabilities at Ubisoft that are important. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is going to be a second step, another yet another step for Tencent in, in the journey of ultimately acquiring majority of Ubisoft. I wouldn't be surprised if they would acquire most of it and take it private and, and fully own it and really take it to, to the next level. So I was going to get into that because that raises a lot of red flags. There's a lot of anti-China sentiment, both in Europe and a lot of people also don't realize you think of Ubisoft as a French company. They have a really large operation in Canada because French speaking Canada, right? So they have a really large organization in Canada, which is increasingly becoming, you know, there used to be a lot of Chinese immigrants to Canada. There's been a lot of anti-China sentiment there as well. And, you know, increasing your stake from 5% to 8% might not rile the regulators, but you try to take over this business, you're going to talking about laying off a lot of people, putting a sensitive business, the national champion for France and for Canada. This is a large organization in the hands of a Chinese entity politically it might not be viable in the current climate. And so, you know, on that note, I actually wonder if it's the other way, if, if this actually precludes, if Tencent becomes a larger shareholder, does this preclude a bigger acquisition or are we only getting part of the story? And this is part of more of a consortium effort where you know, a consortium of the pension fund that already invested, the Gimo family, Tencent, uh, maybe some private equity, whatever, if this becomes the way that this company goes private, that could also work. So I'm curious what this deal actually looks like because it's all speculation at this point. There has been a lot of speculation that Ubisoft would go private very soon, you know, we, because we saw Zynga and Glue and everyone just said Ubisoft's the natural next candidate. There's tons of fats to trim. They have execution issues. This would be a great private equity turnaround story. You know, take it private, cut a lot of the stuff that's not working, do that privately, get them executing correctly, and then come back public or sell it in a few years, whatever it is. So, you know, we, don't, we might only be getting part of the story as this is just a new story. Nothing's confirmed yet. And so there are a lot of possibilities and potentialities of what could happen next but I don't think a full acquisition by Tencent, just given the political climate, is something and, right and now. And maybe just final point. I think my hypothesis is kind of based on a couple of pillars. The first one, Tencent and maybe other shareholders obviously believe that Ubisoft is under undervalued. They believe there is a massive upside, which I'm not surprised because Ubisoft is trading at the moment at roughly you know, five and a half to $6 billion. billion. Uh, so they're obviously thinking that Ubisoft is undervalued. How much Zynga was acquired by 2K, 12 billion enterprise value? So, I mean, is Zynga double the value of Ubisoft? I I'm not sure, right? Um, and so um, there's obviously, they think there is an underperformance or undervaluing the stock. That's one thing, which is more to your point, Matthew, more financial based. The second thing, which I think is more interesting for 
people who think about the metaverse and all of that, those IP, they're not just IP. These are virtual worlds. And if you think about something like Assassin's Creed, this is an incredible virtual world that could become in and of itself a persistent, interoperable virtual world with other assets in the Ubisoft um, network of, of IP or portfolio. And so there's also that piece where there's some really fantastic properties in the Ubisoft umbrella that it could well be that Tencent want to do much more across the, across the board of their holding things with that IP that Ubisoft may not think about on their own. Absolutely. And, you know, just to put the final pin on it and then we'll move on, you know, just to reflect how valuable Ubisoft's IP is, they signed a, well, they haven't given all the details because they can't yet, but in their last earnings report and their quarterly sales for the June quarter, because they delayed all their games, they cut their guidance, but they didn't cut it as much as everyone thought because they're going to make a hundred million or, or 150 million euros on an upfront payment for a, for an IP license for a mobile game from someone else. So someone is going to pay them a lot of money upfront and give them a revenue royalty for one of their IPs, which they're not disclosing all the details yet, but that should just kind of underpin there is value in these franchises and we just need the right execution to recognize it. Now that's been the value trap for the stock for the last five years. So, you know, like just because, we can say there's value that can be unlocked doesn't mean it will. And maybe they just need a complete go private refresh clean house to do it. All right. So let's move on to earnings. We kind of just touched on it with Ubisoft, but we're going to talk about Activision EA and Nintendo Sony. We're going to hit on a few common threads between them and talk about what this means for the metaverse. And then we'll shift gears and preview next week where we have a lot of big names reporting as well. Um, Overall, I think what we're seeing, and this is also being seen in some of the metaverse, the more metaverse pure plays like Roblox, is engagement in general and interactive is coming down right now. And there's a lot of factors in that. There's seasonality. This tends to be a seasonal slow point for the industry. There's difficult comps. Last year was still COVID. People were still home a lot. Uh, and the macro environment is not great. You know, people who might be pulling back some of their game spending or not buying the new PS5 because milk costs nine dollars a gallon now or something like that right and so like these are all factors that are being considered and so just to put some numbers behind it to tie it off and then we'll dive into it that i pulled out from some of the reports activision blizzard's total monthly active users were down sequentially to 361 million and that's the lowest since before call of duty mobile came out in 2019 so basically they didn't they've round tripped the entirety of COVID and call of duty mobile in their in their user base and there's a lot of factors in that, including the ones I talked about at the high level, and there's some Activision-specific stuff, but that was just notable. On the other side, EA's user base is growing. This is not an active user. This is a total registered user. Grew sequentially to $600 million from $580 million. Some of that is acquisitions, but in general, they're seeing a lot of traction in FIFA. They've revamped FIFA Mobile. That seems to be doing okay. So there's some more positive things, but they're still kind of cautious in their outlook on the macro. So that's there. That's a, that's a very common theme amongst these companies. Similar to Activision, Sony saw their PlayStation Network monthly active users fall to the lowest since the third quarter of 19 also. So, so Sony engagement on PlayStation is also round-trip COVID. There's no Roblox on PlayStation, I think, yet. And then, and then lastly, Nintendo, um, their revenue mostly suffered from Switch production delays, still supply chain. So that's kind of the companies that reported. So before we go ahead and look ahead, Yon, anything else you want to touch on in the companies that reported? This yeah, I, I just want to call out a couple of things. The first, 
you know, I think that it's pretty incredible numbers from EA. So they're obviously doing some things well. I mean, this is registered users. It's not active users. So that would be a, a way more important. But but I, I, I agree with your, your, your point around like how the, the scale of the, of the base users that have registered is, is enormous. Um, 600 million is a huge, huge number. And then the other call that I want to make is Nintendo. I think it's, I mean, it's understood that due to supply chain issues, their production on Switch will suffer. However, I do think it's important to see Nintendo continuing to really scale and grow their, their service revenue, their, their subscription revenue. Um, and, and, you know, until they really do that, it's going to be hard for them to grow um, substantially as a, a, their enterprise value. And I think they're also missing on an opportunity. I mean, we, we can talk a lot about Nintendo maybe as a, as a separate episode and maybe we, get, maybe we can get the, the president of Nintendo North America to come on the podcast. Uh, but, but it's obvious that they have so much to play with and do that they are not really tapping into and the revenue suffers because the, the hardware is such a big generator of revenue. And, and I'm waiting for the day of when Nintendo is going to really go in strong strategically into, you know, content and services um, in, in a way that they, they're just not there yet. Nintendo and Sony have been very reluctant to uncouple their IP from their hardware. There's some cultural Japanese aspects to that. There's also just that's always how they've done it. And I think that holds them back. I think that if Nintendo Pokemon Company, which they own a stake in, they don't own all of it, they don't consolidate it, but if they released Pokemon Red and Blue as an iPhone app and charged me $60 for it, I would buy that instantly. And I wouldn't even blink at it. And I would buy all of the microtransactions possible. And I just think there's so many opportunities that they're missing because they're so focused on this model that's worked for so long, hardware driving software, software driving hardware, not breaking the bridges between them, that they really have missed mobile. Sony too has no mobile presence. Um, and they, and they haven't even gone to PC where like, you know, Sony's now trying to build up a PC business. And so, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of things that they could do better. And as we talk about the metaverse and for these companies, a large portion of their metaverse strategy will involve their IP. And if their IP is valuable enough, it will find a home on some metaverse platform, whether they make their own platform or they use that as a gateway to get engagement on another. Um, but if you're not putting your IP everywhere possible and maximizing its value, just as we talked about with Ubisoft potentially, you know, that, that holds you back. And the last thing I'll just note that's a common thread with all of these AAA companies, and we'll probably see it with Take-Two next week, is game delays. We talked about with Ubisoft, they have structural issues, but there's also just COVID has been bad for game development. Nintendo's delayed games, Sony's delayed games. EA's delayed games. Activision is going to miss Call of Duty next year for the first time, which is like insane to even think about a year without a Call of Duty, but we're going to get that. So, you know, this is kind of the state of the industry right now. And, you know, hopefully next year is better. because Everyone is trying to figure out how do you build, how do you build interactive <laughs> looking, experiences remotely, I think, to some extent. It's really difficult for these AAA high quality. I mean, people forget that Call of Duty costs Incredible. like $500 million a year. Like this is not, this is a large budget production. It's, it's, it's a huge, I mean, it's half of an Avengers movie every year. And so, you know, anyway, we'll move forward and we'll look ahead in, 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 you know, to keep the time short. So next week we've got Roblox, we've got company like Bentley systems reporting as well, which I think will be interesting to listen to because they're a, a 3d software company as well. 
Um, but just some num and then take two is reporting. I mentioned that we talked about Zynga. So this is going to be the first quarter really where they've integrated and, and the mobile market's been weak. So, you know, I think there's a lot of focus on, you know, to take two overpay because the mobile market is falling out thanks to Apple and IDFA, but we'll find out that's more for the now. But I also think as we look ahead for take two, before we get to Roblox, you know, I think GTA five GTA online is one of the leading proto metaverse gaming platforms out there. I mean, people forget that it's a huge UGC platform, lots of user created content, um, tons of, you know, tons of engagement. It's a huge revenue driver. They're actually going to start pairing back, you know, people working on that and shifting resources down to GTA six, which I think for a long time, people have been like, this has to happen. But I think that says something about where we're at. We talked about engagement coming down on those other platforms. You know, it, it could be rough, not just for Zynga because of the mobile issues, but GTA online potentially softening, you know, I think moving resources off of that to GTA six is them admitting that, okay, we're past the peak. Finally, this is then this is the transition period to the next. So one. first I think on Roblox, it's, it's, it's really important that overall they continue to grow their user base, right? It may not be the same growth curve and growth trajectory of the last two years, but I think Roblox is consistently growing its daily user, daily active user base. And I think that's important user grow more developers, more content, more content attracts more users, more users attract more developers. That is kind of the core flywheel that I always keep track when I listen to the Roblox earnings and when I read their support materials. So that's what I kind of want to see, like is all of those things are on track, more developers, more content, more users, and more monetization through developers. These are all important things that I think um, uh, we would like to see with Roblox in the, in the earnings next week. And I'll just put some numbers on Roblox. You know, it's great they report monthly numbers because you kind of get a sense of what's happening in real time. So in April and May, their their daily active users kept growing nicely, but they are down sequentially from the same, you know, from the first quarter. So there is some normal seasonality to that because, you know, kids go outside after school. They don't sit at home and play Roblox, but June tends to be seasonally strong because that's when school gets out. So we'll see if June is strong enough to offset, you know, April and May being down. You know, I, that's what kind of is, is, is in consensus right now. I think more importantly, what July looks like because they usually give the first month of the next quarter when they report earnings. A lot of the consensus is that they're going to reaccelerate both user growth and bookings growth in the, in the second half of this year as comps get easier uh, and, and, and it's kind of lapped some of the dilution from international growth. And so, you know, we really need to start to see that happen to, you know, in the July numbers and, and kind of the commentary around that to add confidence that that reacceleration the you know the launch trajectory is there and it's and they're achieving it to get back to double digit you know 20 percent plus growth next year i think and so that's really what for me on the financial side i'm looking for and just on the bookings i'll also mention that they're roughly sequentially flat in the in april and may versus versus uh the first quarter particularly if you assume that june is seasonally stronger it should be roughly flat sequentially. And, and another component that I think is important to look at Roblox is two things that are very strategic. One is the, the trends of the demographics. Is the platform continuing to age up? Are they continuing to effectively attract and retain above 13 um, users? So that's one thing. And then the second thing is the trend of monetization in international markets. Some of the biggest international markets on Roblox are developing economies like Philippines, Thailand, Indonesia, Russia, Brazil. I very much would like to see where we are on that. Previously, until today, I think it's roughly still 
two thirds of users come from rest of the world, but one third of the revenue comes from rest of the world. I would like to see what is the trend and where are we on the monetization of international audience, because that will also be very important, especially as Roblox becomes more saturated in North America. And go check out our twim from last week because we talked all about Roblox developer economics. We talked about ways to monetize emerging markets with like advertising and branded content that aren't direct monetization. Because when you look at just the, not even the propensity to spend on games, but the ability to spend just the, the incomes in these markets. I mean, people forget that like GDP per capita in India is like a thousand dollars. Like, like I know that it's a huge distribution and there's massive wealth inequality, but the large percentage of the population does not make a lot of money. So they don't have the ability to spend a ton on this stuff, let alone the propensity to. And so, you know, we need to find alternative ways to monetize these audiences. And that's, we talked about subscriptions a lot last week, but advertising branded content, ways to, you know, indirectly monetize the audience without directly monetizing them. That's really the next step for Roblox. We also talked about this with Craig Donato in season one. So you can go listen to those episodes if you missed them to get a sense of where, of where that's happening. But, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces with Roblox. They're at a really interesting inflection point. If they can reaccelerate like it's like they're expected to, I think everything's fine. But they really need to execute on the on these growth factors. And then one comment I want to say about about Take Two is, and and this is kind of, I don't suspect that they're working on it, but that is true that GTA is one of the most popular, you know, game worlds, virtual worlds in the world. And however, it's very much a game. Of course, there is a UGC component, but very much like Fortnite is working on integrating the Unreal Engine editor into Fortnite to make it a platform. I am very curious and would love to hear, maybe we should find someone to take to and invite them to the podcast. I would love to hear if that's something that it's on the roadmap and in the vision on the long term for GTA to go beyond the sort of creators UGC stuff and really move into much more complex world that can be built inside GTA. Um, I don't know if that's part of their vision. If it is, it's super interesting because then we have all of these incredible properties, right? That could emerge to become platforms. What's the risk of doing so? What's the downside of not achieving that in the long term? Where are people are going to want to spend their times? Is it still going to be driven by IP built by large corporations? Or is the future is more Roblox just on many more platforms that are trying to Robloxianize their IP? I think that's a great place to end it. Will the world be Robloxianized?